beautiful morning it is to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to see everyone here this morning. Um, I do want us to open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 16. And we came through chapter 15 last week, and we got a behind-the-scenes view of what's going on in heaven right before these bowls of wrath are poured out on the earth. And as the angels who hold these bowls of wrath take their place, God withdraws himself into the temple in heaven until those seven bowls are poured out on the earth. God was brokenhearted. And through these plagues, he will remain brokenhearted over what has to happen. And this week in chapter 16, we'll see the succession of those bowls being poured out on the earth and the deadly plagues that are brought with them. And we'll get a detailed view of that scene. We're going to make it through the first 11 verses this morning, and we'll finish up the rest of the chapter next week. And as we're moving through this chapter, you'll notice a number of parallels between these verses, these plagues, and the 10 plagues that were recorded in Exodus as the Israelites were moving out of Egypt. Now, we'll only mention these similarities in passing, and we won't spend much time on them. But if you want to have a tab in your Bible open to Exodus 7 through 11 while we move along, you can kind of flip back and forth to reference those. But again, I'm, I'm going to be hitting that pretty quick this morning. We won't spend too much time on it. But it is a good thing to be aware of and something good to study on your own time. Let's read through the first 11 verses of chapter 16. We'll get an idea of what we're going into, and then we can take a crack at it. Verse 1 says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became as blood of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl, on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous, are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of the, their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Again and again, they did not repent of their deeds. Now, it's widely held that these bowl judgments contained in chapter 16 occur during the last half of the tribulation, and that's well-founded. That's a, that's 
I would go along with that. The last half, these last three and a half years, or 42 months, or 1260 days of the tribulation are specifically termed the Great Tribulation. And this distinction is given this time period by Jesus himself. And some will use the terms tribulation and great tribulation as interchangeable. And that's okay in some context. But understand as you approach this with a more scholarly view, the great tribulation is specifically the last three and a half years. Now there's no doubt that this is aptly named the great tribulation. And as Jeremiah the prophet said, alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. That's Jeremiah 30, verse 7. This time period that these people are being plunged into is the most intense that the world has ever seen. And these plagues mark the wrapping up of this time of testing. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically say when these judgments will begin to fall in that last three and a half years. But from context clues in our text, we can assume that they're coming in rapid succession towards the end of that last three and a half year period. The tribulation is capped off with the return of Christ exactly 1260 days, that is three and a half years, after the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And since we know that the return of Christ is set to take place at Armageddon, that great battle of the end, we can line up his second coming with the end of these plagues. So we're coming very near to the end of the tribulation when we get to chapter 16 here. Revelation 16.11 lets us know that the sores from the first plague were still affecting men during the fifth bowl being poured out. So these plagues have a sort of compounding effect on humanity. They must occur in fairly rapid succession together. And besides all that, humanity simply couldn't live long-term in the conditions that we'll see unfolding in this chapter. So we place these bowls as being poured out towards the end of the last half of the tribulation. Now, verse 1 of chapter 16, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. We remember from chapter 15 that these bowls are the culmination and are the finality of God's judgment on an unbelieving world. There's finality here. These are the last things that need to happen until this time period is completed, until the millennial reign of Christ is ushered in. So this first verse in the chapter is simply a command that sets all of these plagues into motion. The angels are just instructed to pour out God's wrath on the earth. And it's not all at once. There's a very definite order that things must occur in. There's a order and a method to this judgment. And as we move through, we'll see that these judgments are just. They're not willy-nilly poured out whatever God is feeling at the time, 
They have a purpose. Verse 2, so the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. This foul and loathsome sore came upon the men, but only the men who took the mark of the beast, not those who resisted. And these sores are reminiscent of the boils brought onto the men of Egypt in Exodus 9. And it's certainly possible that these sores will come in the form of boils. In fact, Deuteronomy 28, 27 prophesies that the Lord would strike disobedient Israelites with the boils of Egypt. Could that be a prophecy referring to this time? I think it certainly could. I don't see any fulfillment of this prophecy to date. So this may be speaking of those of God's chosen people who will reject him in favor of the beast. He will send these sores to them. Now the question would arise if these sores were actually caused by the mark itself. And I think that's certainly plausible, though not necessarily necessary, um, something within the mark itself could be causing these sores because we see this clear delineation between those who get the sores, who have taken the mark, and those who do not. And we can imagine many circumstances in which something like a contaminated needle, some contaminated implants, or any other instruments that were used to administer this mark could lead to some health complications. And even something like an outbreak of HIV or some kind of a related viral illness could break out among these people. But there is so much coming that we cannot even begin to imagine. This time of tribulation is among the most supernatural times that the world has ever seen. And so I don't think we need to try to naturalistically explain something that God can accomplish so easily in whichever way he chooses. He was able to draw clear lines of distinction between his people in Goshen and the rest of the the Egyptians. And he'll do a similar work here. But regardless of how it happens, these sores will be unbearably painful, and they'll persist at least until the fifth bowl is poured out, because we have that in our text, but probably further, probably on to the very bitter end for these people. Our text says foul and loathsome in English, and it's translated from kakos and poneros. Both words which are actually translated most of the time in the Bible as evil or wicked. So these are evil sores, wicked sores, that are reserved for evil and wicked people. His judgments are righteous and they're just. And Satan is actually on multiple occasions called the wicked one, using this word poneros, And most of those references to Satan as the wicked one are made by John, who is also writing Revelation. 
some interesting parallels. And it's interesting that followers of this wicked one, the Antichrist, and further, Satan himself, they will break out in these wicked sores as due judgment for their wicked ways. And that's no accident here. And God's people are spared from this calamity. The text specifies that these came on men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these sores are not limited to a third part of the population like some of the previous judgments were. But every person who took this deadly mark is affected. Things are wrapping up here. And things are getting more and more intense as we move toward the end. In verse 3, it says, Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. At the sounding of the second trumpet in Revelation 8, a third of the seas were turned to blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died. But now... All of the seas are turned to blood, and all of the creatures in them die. And the sea here, like in chapter 8, is probably referring to the oceans of the world, to the saltwater bodies. This whole scene is reminiscent of Exodus seven seventeen and on, when the waters of the Nile were turned to blood. And in that account, it says that all the fish in the river died. It also says that it smelled awful. And it also says that the people were disgusted at the idea of drinking that blood water. But they did apparently drink it in Egypt. They apparently were able to drink it, but were disgusted by it. So there may be something to that in Revelation as well. But it says here that every living creature in the sea perished. It died because of this change that occurred to the water. Back in chapter 8, the change was brought about by this celestial body that was plummeted to earth and poisoned a third of the seas. And that's how God chose to bring that change about. It could be that the same type of event is occurring here, but this time many smaller bodies land into the oceans at more diverse locations and actually poison the whole entire thing. Um, Though that's possible, it's not explicitly stated in the text here. And it really wouldn't take that dramatic of a change for seawater to be turned to blood. Chemically speaking, they're very similar. The red color that we associate with blood comes from the protein called hemoglobin. And hemoglobin is found in high concentrations in red blood cells. This hemoglobin protein has a high affinity for oxygen, which makes it the perfect little protein to carry oxygen from our lung out to our tissues. And literally, The life of the flesh is in the blood. 
the blood provides life to the flesh. Hemoglobin contains a lot of iron. And iron is the element that gives the hemoglobin that reddish tint, the red color. And water with high iron content actually turns a reddish color. And that acutely resembles blood, you know, to an astonishing degree. I've got a couple pictures I just found on the internet for you of high iron water. And it's amazing how much it actually does look like blood. And we've got one more. A little less dramatic there, but we can still see how, how that might play into this plague. And water with this high iron would actually end up tasting similar to blood as well. And if you've bit your cheek or bit your tongue, you've tasted that blood, that's the salt, the iron. It's got that very, very unique taste. Um, so people drinking this stuff will not be happy that they're drinking it. It'll taste like blood too. And I mentioned briefly, Leviticus 17.11 actually says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And this is scientifically very accurate. Oxygen is carried to the flesh by the blood. But the water that is turned to blood will not be giving life, but will be taking life. The life will be removed from this bloody water. And verse 3 says that it became blood as of a dead man. The life is gone. And it kills everything that lives in it. All the sea creatures are washing up on the shores. And that's just adding to the stench that's already in the air from the water itself. The coasts of the world are filled with heaps of rotting marine animals. And that is just compounding on the sores. People are already irritable because they're in so much pain. Now they can't breathe. This water is nasty. The air smells nasty. And this even has further reaching implications. The phytoplankton of the ocean are estimated to produce anywhere from half to 80% of the world's oxygen supply. Those phytoplankton are living creatures in the seas that will be taken out with this plague. That means that the Earth's oxygen production would be cut by half as a conservative estimate. It wouldn't take long until people would start feeling that difference. They'd have to be working harder to get enough oxygen in their bodies, but the air that you breathe in is rotten fish and putrid blood. It's not a happy scene. And on top of that, they're suffering from those sores. Revelation 21.1 tells us that the new earth will have no more sea. There will be no more sea in the new earth. What God created in Genesis 1.21 has now died off at this point in the tribulation. And this seems to be a bitter type of transition into 
the millennial earth, which will in turn be completely replaced by the new earth. He's making things right again, but it's a bitter transition for the people who are still here. The sea that was once a wellspring of life has now become a pool of death. And verse 4, the third angel poured his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, so we're dealing now with this third angel and this third plague with the rivers and springs of water. This is the freshwater supplies of the earth. In the previous plague, it seems we're dealing just with the salt water. Now we're dealing with the drinking water, the water that they would be using to wash their sores. This is a bitter, bitter time. The turning of the oceans to blood wouldn't in itself corrupt man's water supply completely. But the turning of freshwater reservoirs to blood would corrupt that supply. And at best, this would make human survival far more difficult, at the very best. And there could be maybe some underground reservoirs that resist this plague, um, but we can't say for sure. And it seems that this water would only be truly potable after some intense purification. And that purification process would be expensive to carry out at this time. Um, It's just not a situation you want to be in. But verse 6 does tell us that this blood water can be used as drinking water, uh, though it's bitter and repulsive. In verse 6 it says, And you have given them blood to drink. Interesting. Probably some kind of purification must be done before it's good to drink, or at least before you want to drink it. Verse 5 and 6. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. God is righteous and just in his judgments. And there's a purpose behind every one of these plagues. None of it is done without purpose. And it's not like he's sitting on his throne in heaven laughing at the show that's being played out on earth. You know, Ezekiel tells us that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's not who he is. And in fact, he's already withdrawn himself into the temple with a broken heart while all of this is going down. He is not even taking pleasure over the death of these wicked, wicked, most wicked people of the earth. He takes no pleasure. But there is justice in his judgments. And this angel explains how this particular judgment is just. 
for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. So because they've shed the blood of saints and prophets, it is just in the eyes of God to give them this blood to drink. You want to shed blood? Here you go. Here's all the blood that you could ever want. And these people seem to love blood, so he lets them have it. It's not some random and cruel punishment that's undeserved, but it's the righteous and judgment, the righteous and just judgment upon a sinful world. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. This other voice makes the same attestation of righteousness as the angel of the waters. And it seems likely that this other voice is that of another angel, though there is another possibility. Some manuscripts here leave out the words, another from. And that would make verse 7 read, And I heard the altar saying. Now, I don't think the altar is actually speaking, but it may seem to John as if it were. Remember back in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, John described a multitude as being under the altar. This was the multitude of saints who had been martyred for their testimony in Jesus Christ. And they called out with a loud voice back in chapter 6, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That seems to tie right in to what the angel of the waters was saying. That was the cry of the saints who had had their blood spilled on earth for Christ. And the answer to that question in chapter 6, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood, then was just wait a little while longer. Just hang on a little longer and it will be done. But now in chapter 16, God is avenging their blood, and he is just in that. Seven times in the book of Revelation is Jesus called both Lord and Almighty. In the first instance, in Revelation 1.8, he introduces himself as the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And in subsequent mentions of Lord Almighty, it's used as an ascription of praise towards Jesus. First, he's introducing himself as Lord Almighty, then it is used as an ascription of praise. And I heard another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. So up till now, all the plagues had come on the earth. This bowl of God's wrath is poured out on the sun. So it directly affects the sun, but as we'll see, it has huge and lasting ramifications on the earth. Poured out his bowl on the sun and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat 
and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. This fourth plague is a plague of heat, but the increased heat from the sun will also bring many side effects with it. And this angel is given the knowledge and the power to increase the fervor of the sun so that it produces this extreme heat on the earth. In the last chapter of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi tells of a great heat. Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, certainly these men would fit the description of proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up. That's from Malachi. Isaiah also prophesies of this day, saying, therefore the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. That's Isaiah 24, 6. And once more in Isaiah 30, 26, probably speaking of this same event, moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. So if that prophecy in Isaiah is speaking of this time of intensity in the sun, the sun will be cranked up to seven times its normal brightness. We can only imagine the heat that will emanate from the sun. And the moon will be as bright as the sun is today. The intensification of the sun's light and heat will cause the moon to reflect more light to the earth so that even at night, the world would be lit up. And this will mess with people's sleep. You can't sleep as well if it's bright in your room. And along with the boils, the dehydration from the lack of water, the lack of oxygen setting in, people will begin acting irrationally and impulsively, and even more so than they were before. And as if all of this wasn't enough, the melting ice caps from the extreme heat would facilitate a rise in sea levels of up to 200 feet above their current levels. The heat would increase the rate of evaporation while throwing off what we know as the normal hydrologic cycle so that the evaporated water would actually remain suspended in the atmosphere. And this would create an intensified greenhouse effect on the world that would sort of even out the climate all over. And of course, it would be hot, a hot climate all over the world. What that does, in turn, is evens out the pressure in the whole world so that the winds die down. We know that the winds occur as a result of pressure differentials, 
moving from a high gradient to a low gradient. Um, with this evening out of the heat across the world, the winds would actually die down. And of course, with no breeze, the heat would feel intensified even further. The melting of the ice caps would more than make up for the water loss due to evaporation, at least for a while. And this rapid rise in sea level would end up flooding many of the world's greatest cities. New York, Tokyo, London, Los Angeles, Rio de Janeiro, Buenos Aires, Amsterdam, Leningrad, Rome, Athens, Beirut, Calcutta, Shanghai, Singapore, Hong Kong, and many others. And many of these coastal shipping centers have long been notorious for corruption and immorality. It seems they would be appropriate recipients of this divine judgment. And remember, too, that this is not just a flood of seawater. This is a flood of blood mixed with rotting corpses of sea animals. But... The two great cities of the end times are at sufficient enough elevation to be safe from this flood. Those two cities, does anybody have a guess? Jerusalem and Babylon. They would be safe from this 200-foot rise in sea level. And it even seems that this melting of the ice caps and this flood is prophesied in the Old Testament. Let's look at that. Psalm 147, 17, and 18. It says, He casts out his hail like morsels. He sends out his word and melts them. That's Psalm 147, 17, and 18. Now, that doesn't convince you. Let's look at Job 38, 22, and 23. Have you entered the treasury of snow, or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Could this time of trouble be referring to the tribulation? You know, it would certainly fit. It is most definitely a time of trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble. Could the day of battle and war point to this time when the nations of the earth are gathering together in war against the armies of heaven. Could that fit? Have you entered this treasury of snow or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I've reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? People have different views, but it's possible that Job and many of the writers of our Bible had not seen the ice caps. Now, I actually haven't been up that way. I haven't seen them personally. But they wrote about them in the language that they knew. A treasury of snow that is a storehouse of snow, a storehouse of hail, which I've reserved. He's tucked away at the north and south for the time of trouble. For the day of battle and war. It's a possibility. Amos 9, verses 5 and 6. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, 
and all who dwell there mourn. All of it shall shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. All of it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. That paints this picture of a swelling, a flood, and then a recession of the flood, like the tides of the Nile in Egypt. The sea swells and floods these coastal cities, but afterward, because of the intensified evaporation, it retreats. And as the waters evaporate, the solutes in the water, the iron and whatever else is mixed in there, get more and more concentrated as the volume of water decreases. And that would make the water even more noxious and putrid than even before. But in spite of all this, it seems that the men of the earth know exactly who is behind the plagues. And instead of glorifying him, and instead of repenting of their wicked ways, they blaspheme his name. These guys and gals are unrelenting as the wrath of Almighty God is poured out onto them. And we'll talk about the canopy theory when we get to Genesis, but if you're uh, privy to that, that's the view that before the flood of Noah, there was a canopy of water around the Earth's atmosphere. And that contributed to the higher pressure in the atmosphere, which allowed things to grow bigger and for people to stay alive longer. That canopy also protected from the sun's rays, uh, which caused mutations in our DNA, um, also lending to the longer lifespans that we see in Genesis. Um, And that canopy was released during the flood to actually flood the world. Now, that is an interesting view, especially in terms of what we see here in Revelation. Because if you think that that canopy was up in the beginning, it fell during the flood, now it seems that God is replacing that canopy by evaporating the waters and holding them there. Because this greenhouse effect and everything else that's going on are going to cause a shortage of rainfall. The rain is going to be stored somewhere in the atmosphere. It's possible that we see God replacing the canopy that was brought down in the flood. Um, Again, just a theory, but something to consider. Verse 10, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. This darkness, it says, is poured out on the throne of the beast. That's thronos. That is literally the throne of the beast. And that word is used many, many times in Revelation, mostly to describe the throne of God. So we have this picture of actually the throne, the very seat of the beast. And his kingdom became full 
of darkness. Now, this raises the question as to the extent of this plague. Is it global or is it local? Well, it seems to be more local than global. The exact extent of this darkness we can't definitively say, but it seems concentrated on the kingdom of the Antichrist. So where is his kingdom? Well, some will say his kingdom will be Jerusalem. It's not Jerusalem. He will set himself up in the temple to be worshipped there. Yes, that will be the abomination of desolation. But his headquarters will be set up elsewhere. I don't believe it will be Jerusalem. Some say it's Rome, that he'll set up his headquarters in Rome. It could be, but as we'll see a little later on, his kingdom seems to be closely associated with the Euphrates River. And the Euphrates isn't in Italy. His kingdom is called, in prophecy, Babylon. And we have pretty good reason to believe that he will actually set up his kingdom at the historical location of Babylon. Some agree and some disagree with this view, and please feel free to either agree or disagree. Uh, We can still be friends. Um, I'll show you where Babylon is on the map. It's, I forgot my laser pointer, but Babylon is right there. And this is the Euphrates running southeast into the Persian Gulf. So Babylon is actually situated right on the Euphrates River. And it's in this area of Mesopotamia, which translated literally means land between the rivers. So this area of Mesopotamia is situated between the Euphrates, and the Tigris rivers. Babylon was the birthplace of idolatry, and it's from Babylon that the various idolatrous religions of the world took their shapes. Nimrod was the first world dictator who came, not coincidentally, out of Babylon. Antichrist is destined to be the last world dictator And I believe he will also come out of Babylon. Or at the very least, he will set up his headquarters in Babylon. And we'll see more on Babylon in chapter 17, but we're going to keep plugging away for now. Just like in Egypt, this plague of darkness is concentrated on the enemy and spares the people of God. And from the language in verses 10 and 11, we're led to think that this darkness falls over the beast's capital city of Babylon, but leaves most of the world uncovered by this darkness. So it is more local in its reach, it seems. I think it's interesting that it describes his kingdom as being full of darkness, because When we think of darkness, we tend to think of it in the terms of the absence of light. Darkness is not something you apply, but darkness is just there when you take away the light. But here, it seems there's something supernatural about this darkness. His kingdom is 
full of it. And there's some kind of pain associated with this darkness. And we saw that pain came with the darkness in Egypt. What exactly that is, I have no idea. But it's not going to be like anything we've ever seen. Now, this darkness brings a great contrast between the light of the surrounding world and the darkness that comes onto Babylon. If the sun is shining at, say, roughly seven times its normal levels, or even just ramped up a little bit, the rest of the world is dealing with this intense brightness, while the capital of the beast kingdom is dealing with a thick, painful darkness. We aren't sure from the text alone if this darkness is able to be penetrated by artificial lights in buildings and such. But even if the power grid is still functional, which is entirely debatable, you know, these plagues could have already knocked out all of the electrical power systems. But if it's still functional, the use of electric power would probably be limited only to the elite and the very important people because it would be so limited. And there's no mention of the heat being lifted even in this darkness, but only the light leaving. This darkness is especially fitting as a judgment because Jesus said men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Light is a great exposer. If you're in a dark room, I mean completely pitch black, can't even see your hand in the front of your face, you look around, you see nothing. You light a small match, and it lights up the entire room. It illuminates, and it makes things plain. It shows you what was hid in the darkness. The light exposes things. You know, David said, search me. See if there's any way of iniquity in me. So in this act of giving them up to themselves, God simply gives them what they've been wanting for so many generations. That is darkness. He gives them the desires of their heart. And this is reminiscent of Romans 1.21. And we're probably familiar with this because although they knew God and these people recognized where these plagues came from, they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, verse 9. They know where it's coming from because although they knew God, They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. God has given these hardened men over to their own vile passions, any whim of their heart. And these men continue to blaspheme his name in the face of these intense, intense, Plagues. 
verse 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. These sores are still with them from the very first bowl that was poured out on the earth. They're still carrying those same sores in their bodies, a mark of their disobedience, if you will. And this seems to be a pretty concrete refutation of the historical theory of interpretation for Revelation. The historical view of Revelation supposes that we are now in the tribulation. And since Christ's incarnation, his first coming, we've been going through the tribulation. Um, And this view supposes that we can match up historical events between the first century and now to events that are described in Revelation. And there are some things that loosely fit descriptions if you take them allegorically. If you take them across the board symbolically, you can get some things to fit, but some things you cannot get to fit. And a lot of things do not find um, even partial fulfillment in history. This idea that the sores stuck with them from the first bowl to the fifth at least means that these events were compressed. They came in rapid succession from one another. They're not stretched out over centuries um, in the church age. So this is a good place to point if you come across someone who holds this historical view of Revelation. You can say, no, these things have not happened yet. These are completely future to us. Um, As we've looked at going through in our study, Revelation is broken down into three main parts. And Jesus actually gives John a nice little compact outline for his writing. That's in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, write the things which you've seen. That's the first part. The things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, the church things. And the things which are to come, or are to come hereafter, metatauta. That's the third part. And all the rest of Revelation, verse or chapter 4 to the end, are things to come. It's a futurist perspective on events in the world. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. The state of the world will simply not be sustainable for human life for long periods of time under the effects of these plagues. These events must quickly come to pass, as John wrote himself in the first verse of Revelation. And when Jesus gave his confidential briefing on the end times to his disciples, he expressly mentioned of this very time period, Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Remember, God is keeping for himself 144,000 Jewish Christians. 
We saw them sealed on the forehead with the mark of God. He is keeping them through all of these events. There are several, several groups throughout history that have tried to say that they are the 144,000. I don't know why you would want to do that to yourself. I am perfectly fine getting out of here before all this goes down. I don't know why they want to pin that on themselves. But still, we see that view come up. Unless those days were shortened, an intense period of time, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. We find that in Matthew 24, 22. In other words, these things can't be drug out forever. There has to be an end. And it has to come pretty quick after the beginning. We know that these bold judgments will be contained by the last three and a half years of the tribulation. That is the second half. But it's my view that they won't even begin until sometime toward the very end of that last half. And once they begin, they will be coming one after another in fairly rapid succession. And we can ask ourselves, why are these guys still resisting God? They have a perfectly fine opportunity to repent. And I believe they still could be saved if they had in their hearts to repent. And I think that there are a few reasons probably that they don't. Unfortunately, some of these we still see today, and these reasons will persist till the end of time, or the end of the world, more technically. Um, But would anyone actually repent after they died and went to hell, or whatever your view is, purgatory, hell, any kind of suffering, We don't hold to purgatory, don't worry. Whatever your view is, would anybody actually repent as they're suffering? I don't think so. I think that they're so set in their ways. They they have so hardened their hearts against God that there's not a second chance. But if there were, I don't think they would even take it. You know, Hebrews tells us that it's appointed once for men to die and then the judgment. There's no second chance after death. I don't think it would do any good even if there was. Would anyone actually repent after death if they had the chance? These guys have literally been through hell on earth. And they have hardened their hearts so much against God, that they are unwilling to turn from their wicked ways and repent. They did not repent of their deeds. They kept on sinning through all of this. And that's the side that they've chosen. They've taken the mark of the beast. They can no longer be saved. They've chosen their ways, and they do not repent of them. This is the harsh reality that the world will be plunged into. 
But remember, there is a purpose and there is a righteous God behind all of it. God's ways are so far beyond our understanding. Even if he told us why he did things the way he did things, could we understand? God, why did you allow such and such to happen in my life? Why, God? You remember the song that the martyrs sang in chapter 15. Your ways are just. You are righteous, God. There was no instance of why. Why, God? Because they understood. They understood that his ways are righteous and ours are not. And although I'm sure that they wouldn't choose to be persecuted the way they were, had there been another way, but they realize, God, your your ways are righteous. They are just and they are perfect. Now, I am thankful. I am so thankful that God has not appointed us to wrath, but salvation. He has appointed us to salvation through his son. And we have this morning, we don't know how long this opportunity is going to last, but today, right now, we have the opportunity to take that gift that's been extended to us, the gift of salvation that's freely been made available. And I believe that when we take that, we are destined to get out of here before all of these events go down on the earth. While this is coming down, while the wrath of God is being poured out, we will be around the throne of God, singing praises. You have the opportunity to be with that group and not this group. Don't let that opportunity pass you by. If you have questions after service, after we wrap up, please come talk to me. I'd be happy to visit with you about that. Let's close our study this morning in a word of prayer. Thank mm-hmm. you.